0: Welcome. It's Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Bill Sutherland, longtime friend and uh, very important person at Beckett Media and very important person at Beckett Publications as well. But first, thanks sponsors Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, ComC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huggins & Scott Auctions tops panini and upper deck
1: thanks jim i I really appreciate you you know having me on i've looked forward to this for quite some time since you first brought this idea to us and we've all enjoyed the existing episodes and i've learned you know quite a bit about people that i've known for 30 years and said wow never heard (laughs) that story before so yeah Definitely some interesting uh, you know, tidbits coming out. I've been in the hobby now, this is my 36th year actually in terms of collecting in some form or fashion. At 10 years old, I was a big Chicago Blackhawks fan. My dad and I went to games and I thought it would be cool to get some hockey cards. So I was at a flea market in Indiana uh, called Uncle John's Flea Market. And my good buddy, Dave Slipka, will know all about that place. It's got a bunch of barns full of junk. And I was walking through and there was like a 1970-71 tops binder of cards. And I bought my first card for a dollar, Pitt Martin. And I put it in my wallet, my Velcro wallet as a 10-year-old. And I carried that card around for probably a good six to eight years. And once I realized the extents of the hobby at that point as a 10-year-old, I said, this is pretty cool. And hockey cards were cheap. And this is 1984, so the big blitz on hockey hadn't really started. So my dad and I started collecting. And we reached out to um, a couple local hobby shops and Dalton Hobby and Collectibles, um, old school Ken. He's been around a long time. His uh, shop was in the back of a barber shop. You walk through the barber shop, and then there was his little baseball card store behind that. And I'd go in and ask for hockey cards, and he'd say, "Yeah, I got some." And he'd give me a box. My first uh, like 700 count box I ever went through was 84, tops hockey. He said, "I take what you want, nickel a card." So I picked out all the ones that said Space RC on the end of the description, based off of probably an old Sport Americana guide. So I was picking up Eiserman rookies, Lafont rookies, Barrasso rookies, a nickel 10 cents a piece. And I stocked up. And at that point, he realized I was a hockey fan. And over the time, probably between the time I was 10 years old and 16 years old, I had a complete run of 68, 69 to the present hockey sets, all complete, tops and Opeachy. And that was what really got me rolling. Chicago, obviously, hotbed of the hobby activity for a, a lot of people. So I started doing shows and I would do church shows and VFW hall shows and you name it. And I was buying cards from my friends and I'd have to steal a dollar from my mom's wallet every once in a while to buy a card. And I bought a, a Mario Lemieux rookie from a buddy for a dollar and was able to sell it for 10 and thought that was unbelievable. Garage sales, you name it. So I really got hooked on the collecting aspect. And then I got hooked on, hey, I'm 12, 13 years old and now I can make a couple bucks. I can buy a candy bar. I can buy some more packs of cards. I can run up to the local uh, drugstore in our town and I could get 86 tops baseball looking for Floyd Yeomans at the time and whoever the guys were. So it just grew for me. And uh, I started doing these shows. I did one show. I think I was 12 and I did a thousand dollars at a church show. And my parents thought I stole from the collection plate or something crazy because here I am 12 years old and I did a thousand dollars. So they encouraged me. We kept growing. I'd buy collections from the guys in the neighborhood. And I visited a lot of local card shops and bought out their hockey inventory because I said, Hey, I'm going to focus. I love hockey. So I did pretty well running around the city, the South side of Chicago. I ran into, To this guy called Dave Slipka, didn't know his last name, just knew him. We interacted at shows many times in the south suburbs of Chicago, only to come to realize that another ten years later we worked together closely at this place called Beckett Publications out in Dallas, Texas. So that was a weird little crossover. But as I grew up, I started doing more and more shows. I got a car, I could drive all over the city into Indiana, into Wisconsin, and I became known as the hockey guy. Just lots and lots of hockey, and we had Michael Jordan, a famous guy in the '90s there, and we did really well on basketball 91, 91, two, two, three, phenomenal for us. So I got a couple jobs in in card shops, JC's Cards and Comics, Doc's Comics, KDS Cards and Collectibles, and worked with a lot of different guys in the industry and eventually bought out some of their businesses and ran some stores up until I went to college. Attended University of Illinois, Chicago, so I'd go to school in the morning, and then I'd come home, and I'd play with baseball cards, and I'd sort, and I'd get my little sister sorting cards, and I'd get my mom sorting cards, and do uh, the card stores in the evenings, and do shows on the weekends. Eventually, the summer of 1996, I see an ad in Beckett Hockey, hey, we're looking for analysts. So about June, May or June, I send in my letter, very amateurish. I'd never done a resume. I'm pretty young at that point in college. And by uh, August or September, I hadn't heard from Beckett. And I'm like, ah, forget this guy. He doesn't want me. It doesn't make a difference now. I'm moving on. So I finish up. I'm still in college. And eventually Dan Hitt calls me and says, hey, we would like to interview you for hockey. And they put on this guy called Al Muir, who absolutely grills me on some crazy hockey minor league stuff I'd never heard of, and teams, and you name it. But I did well enough that they flew me out to Dallas, probably September, October of uh, 1996. And uh, I spent an evening with the entire team, and Grant Sandground, and Pat Blandford, and Mike Jasperson, and these guys grilled me over dinner at Steak and Ale or something, talking hockey. And great time, very nerve wracking, seeing all these guys whose names I'd read in the magazine. And I saw their stories and I saw their readers write questions and things like that. And uh, apparently I had a good interview. I flew back to Chicago that uh, Wednesday and Dan Hitt made an offer to me by lunchtime that day. So a little negotiation, a little back and forth. And I took the offer. And at the time I was at Purdue University finishing up my degree in criminology of all things. I was supposed to go into the FBI. Hold on, Bill. Basically
0: everything you've said is consistent with everything you've done Since then, okay. But only thing I want to draw out though is that when Dan made you an offer, you're the master negotiator. Are you saying you took his offer or are you-
1: no, absolutely not. I, I got an offer and I said, wow, that's interesting. I kind of started doing the math, but I had never lived on my own. I'd never had an apartment. I don't know you know, anything about Dallas, Texas, other than I don't like the Cowboys. And that was it. So I'm thinking the TV show Dallas and a bunch of guys on, on horses and boots. And I had no idea. So I, I did a little research that day and called up a couple other people at Beckett that I had their business cards and said, where do you live? What does it cost to live? And, and I did some of the math and I said, wow, Dan's leaving me about a hundred dollars a month for food. I don't think this is going to work. I'm going to have to bounce back and forth here. I also knew what the jobs in law enforcement were going to pay. Chicago Police Department, I was you know, on the list to join that. Chicago Fire. So I had an idea. So Dan and I went back and forth and he was tough, but I think he was in the position where hockey was a tough hire and has always been a tough hire. And I had the knowledge that they were looking for to work with Al Muir and really build up that magazine. So we went back and forth for almost five hours that day from noon till 5 p.m. <laughs> I would call my mom at work. I call my dad at work. Hey, what do you think? I got another two thousand. I got another thousand. Whatever it was, and uh, we eventually settled, you know, on a number. And the company was very generous in helping me move out there and setting up an apartment. So they flew me out in November uh, with
0: my. I, I remember this because I remember discussions <laughs> with Dan and the guys. And again, your criminology or whatever it was very intriguing to me that we were going to get someone of your uh, diverse talents who also uh, loved the hobby. And basically, when you're telling your collector origin story, you were using the word collector, but you were always a very enterprising collector slash dealer. And yes. this guy, you always had the, the a really great business sense. And we were intrigued by that. We did have a salary scale, so we couldn't sure. pay you way more than somebody else. But
1: right. Absolutely. We, had,
0: we had a probably a range in there. So I, I'm so glad we went the extra mile or whatever. However, you're, this is all happening in and around the time of my heart attack.
1: Just a few, just yeah. Shortly afterwards, absolutely. So well, shortly
0: afterwards is when you came after I'd had my heart attack, but I think the negotiations were before.
1: Quite possibly, yeah, yeah. That time frame seems so long ago, but yeah, it was definitely a, a, a different time for me, and there was definitely some change in the air at Beckett, or some just a, a different, maybe a different mentality internally as to how things were moving forward. The hobby was moving at one pace; you had your own personal pace, you know, that you had to move at. And we brought on a lot of new people around that same time, and we lost some old people. Jeff Allison moved on, and Mike Hirsch moved on, and some other guys just moved out. And yeah, it, well, was just, moved it was just, it was, I moved out. I you moved, moved
0: out. out. I had a heart attack, yep. and I really never came back into the day to day pricing. And so that's why it was so important to get really sharp guys. Who let's say you were that guy, but let's move to the other to the after that of your career because of all the people we hired, you were the one of the most how would I say proactive about uh, managing your career and and being within the company and seeing opportunities to, not necessarily to move up although you did move up but there'd be something that would come up and you would say I could do that let, oh, me, absolutely. I mean, let me do that and so where did you get that because that really was a benefit to our company as we moved into the late '90s and early 2000s.
1: Yeah. I took a lot of that from from my dad who, while he was a Chicago police officer, he moved up several ranks. He had several master's degrees. He always worked multiple jobs. So I saw the work you know, ethic. When I started at Beckett, my goal was to really advance into an executive kind of position. I always wanted to have a, a say in what we were going to do other than just Pricing was awesome. And I lived that for years, but I saw that there was bigger and I wanted to modernize what had been built. So a lot of my advancement was around the people just say computers you Well, know, that's that's but development. And I built macros in Excel to help make it more efficient to gather information. And we got rid of the old satellite dish for Sportsnet downloads and really built out the framework of technology for Beckett, which allowed us to price more and more cards better and faster. Grant and Dan had their great methodologies and way of doing things, but it needed that push. So I was able to get that push and sat in your office and told you, I want to build PGS2 thousand or whatever it is the next version of price guide software
0: but i always thought you were the intermediary between grant and dan and the price guide leadership team and me somewhat as well and mark yep. harwell and, and the mark, guys that yep. were doing the the digital the programming and right. the architecture and yep. you seem to be able to speak both languages so many of the proposals we had over the years for people to do new software for us where they just didn't understand the hobby you were a trusted guy you had done it And you spoke both languages. So again, hats off to you, but that was an important role, Bill. And that was Ah. more important than the pricing.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I thought the pricing could be taught to people, but being able to be that middleman to say the price guide needs to do this because the hobby is this way and not have just a developer build a piece of software the way a developer would want to build it. It would have been disastrous for the company had we built the price guide software the wrong way. And we were able to really advance that as I moved out of pricing at what was it, SDP or CDP at the time. And I actually moved downstairs into the interactive group and had an office down there with Chris Borden and Mark and Airy and those guys. And they had to listen to me because they didn't know what to do next. They knew the technology part, but they didn't know how the hobby had to respond. And we were doing things with text files and very basic schemes on the website, which was great because we were still the first, but we weren't the best. And we really were able to build out technology, make the price guide software better. To this day, the price guide software is the epicenter of everything that Beckett itself does. The magazines, the books, the grading database, the pop reports, you name it, that has to come from the price guide database. And we had a good structure. We had good hobby people. And I was given a lot of freedom from you and Mark and, and Jeff even to build this the way that a hobbyist would do it, not the way a developer wanted to do it. And that was groundbreaking for us internally. And that allowed me to grow myself, my career. Dan was entrenched as a senior manager. Grant was what he was. Theo, Mike, everyone had their spots. So I was ready for something slightly different with my knowledge of the hobby, price guides, and technology. And that really allowed us to move quickly, I think, compared to what we've done in the past. We were able to jump on that and get a really cool piece of software internally and better data and better tools for our customers.
0: I don't think my heart attack was an accident. It was kind of a fluke. Things happen. But I will say this, the original software software that had my fingerprints all over it would only take us so far. And the right. challenge that you have as, a, as an entrepreneur is you either got to innovate or, or somebody's going to come and somebody's going to do it for you. And so to have an internal restart of somebody that really knew what they were doing, because my ideas, when I kept it simple and it worked, and it I, now I look back, Bill, and I just think it lasted a lot longer than I would have thought. But sure. by 96, 97, 98, 99, we wouldn't have been able to do grading. If we hadn't had all this, we got into the digital age and you were were a huge part of
1: that. Absolutely. I remember having a discussion in your office saying, we need a data warehouse. We already have a warehouse, somebody said. I said, no, not a physical warehouse. This is virtual. This is a place to store all the data that we've built and gathered. And it gives us the ability to copyright and lock it down in standardized formats and that really made a difference for us getting that data warehouse.
0: My big issue was the uh, protection of our intellectual property, and uh, Mark had uh, Mark could speak eloquently to that, but he didn't. He was more of a coin collector, so he understood sure. the collecting mentality. But he, the, the number of SKUs and the conditions and all these things that we would have, yep. and I was very comforted in these discussions that you were involved. In th- because we're going to stop now because I have a fifteen-minute rule, but I want to get you back and talk about the other half of your experience. But you. Throughout your career, from 10 years old, you're thinking, I'm a collector, but why shouldn't this be self-sustaining? Why shouldn't Absolutely. I enjoy it and make money and and find my niche in what I, Bill Sutherland, can do? And you brought that mindset mentality to Beckett Publications, then Beckett Media, and I'm really glad you did. I'm glad you're not a cop. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, but, uh, no. But, I uh, made the right choice and you were a great, you know, inspiration and, and, and role model in terms of the hobby and how to build something. And it was just unbelievable for me to be able to say, I'm going to Beckett. And people said, What? No, you're not. Yeah. I was going to something that was changing the hobby, really had an impact on collectors, dealers, and even just basic hobbyists. They all knew it. And it was the coolest thing to date that I've done was to be able to tell people I'm going to Beckett. And that was just an awesome feeling. So thank well,
0: you. Well, uh, that's a good note to end on. I'm for sure going to get Bill back after a while to uh, talk about his corporate experience with the new entities that have owned it since me. So again, thanks, Bill. Thanks listeners. We'll Thank be back again tomorrow with another episode. The Man-